You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! going on guys welcome to another episode of peer pleasure with dewey halpas on equal vision records and sound talent media i am dewey your host with the most bringing more great content week after week this week we have eva gardner eva gardner was one of the founding members of the mars volta uh she has played with share she has done i believe 15 plus years with pink uh she is an incredible bass player uh and just an incredible musician all around uh, and I wanted to have her on because the first time I saw the Mars Volta was at the Meow Meow here in Portland, Oregon. And there was maybe, I don't know, 25, 30 people here. And it was a very small room. And I was fascinated. I was watching her play. I was watching John Theodore play. There was just so much going on. And we talk about it a little bit on the episode. But uh, I've been just curious about what she does ever since. And seeing the massive artists that she's playing for and her her family's background, her father's background, uh, her relationship to music, her relationship to instruments, uh, all sorts of interesting stuff that we cover on this conversation. And I had a good idea that it was going to be a great one. Um, you know, I just love talking to people that have done amazing things like she's done and come from amazing people. Uh, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. And if you have not heard Eva Gardner, you can go check out, uh, you know, her early stuff with the Mars Volta. You can check out her work. Uh, she's a live bass player for, for pink. And, uh, she also has solo music out. Um, there's a EP called dark matter that's out on Spotify. That's really good. Um, just check her out, go follow her on socials. She's got a lot of cool stuff going on and a great, great story to tell. 
And that's what we're going to get into uh, here in a minute. So let's get some business out of the way and we'll jump right in. So rockabilia.com is sponsoring this episode. Rockabilia.com. Pier 15 is the code. If you want to get 15% off your order, head on over to rockabilia.com, pick up some merch. Uh, There's over 500,000 items officially licensed from the bands in the store and the bands get paid. That's what that means. So head over to rockabilia.com. And use the code Pier fifteen, excuse me, Pier fifteen at checkout for fifteen percent off your order. Uh, PeerPleasurePodcast.com is the website. PeerPleasurePod at gmail.com is the email if you want to get in touch with me with guest ideas or questions or comments. Uh, you can join the Facebook group, the Peer Pleasure Podcast Inner Circle. Uh, there you'll find who's coming up. You'll be able to ask questions, uh, be able to find out uh, or actually add questions if you want to uh, things for me to chat about with the guests when I do have time to get to those. Um, that doesn't always happen, but sometimes it does. Um, and you can also join the premium service, peer pleasure pod, excuse me, peer pleasure podcast. Excuse me. (laughs) I've done this so many times and I'm fouling this up. Peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the premium service. And there you get the videos of the episodes. You get access to the past cast podcast and the ad free feed. So if you don't like all the ads in the episode, you can go there and support the show that way. And you don't have to listen to those. All right, so uh, this was a really interesting episode. I did it a while back. Uh, it's been in the hopper for a while uh, for no specific reason. Uh, it just had a lot to get through, and we're finally catching up. So I'm uh, really glad to bring this one to you. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Eva Gardner. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm Can you great. hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah, sounds good. I'm just cool. uh, making sure the levels are good here. Awesome. Okay. 
Well, thanks for doing this. Yeah, of course. I appreciate it. Um, I'm trying to think. <laughs> I was just watching this this uh, Nicholas Cage on Jimmy Kimmel. I don't know if you've seen okay. it yet. <laughs> it's one of the most ridiculous interviews I've ever seen. Uh, which I could recently. Yeah, like it was. It must have been in the last couple days. But he's wearing like a <laughs> like a brushed aluminum suit. And they were talking about him having like two headed snakes and buying bat caves and things like anyway. I, I was watching that this morning and it was I'm still laughing about it. It's pretty absolutely hilarious. Um has he lost his mind or is he or is he is it just like a silly, just a fun interview? Uh, I think it's a little of both. Or is he a little of both? <laughs> okay. it, it's him. I, I now know that like the the Nicolas Cage that everyone jokes about is is who he actually is. Like it's not acting; it's just right. him. <laughs> he's a, he's quirky. He's a character. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but anyways, neither here nor there. I was just I was still <laughs> still laughing about it. It made my morning. Um, I'm trying to think. I I I just I specifically remember the first time I became aware of you. And it was in Portland, Oregon, here where I live, uh, at the Meow Meow with the Mars Volta. Mm. And I want to say there was probably like 50 people there. Mm-hmm. Like it was, I think it was the first time you guys played Portland. Uh, it was it was a super incredible show. John Theodore's drums kept breaking. Mm-hmm. Had to keep fixing it. I don't know if that happened to every show, but it probably did. Uh blew my mind the show blew my mind it was incredible and we didn't know what to expect we hadn't heard anything uh we just showed up like oh it's a new it's a new project cool let's go check it out it's like the upstairs you may not remember but it's like an upstairs uh it's now like a condo like a single condo okay (laughs) that's how small the club is um and it was just it blew my mind and it was incredible and and uh then after that, like years pass or whatever, things move on. Like uh, you're no longer in the band, band keeps going. But then I start seeing your name pop up with all these other artists. And I was like, holy shit, like <laughs> going from this to this to this. And then, I've, of course, I started looking into like how it all all happened. And it's a pretty fascinating story. And I wanted to kind of talk about that with you because uh, I don't know the full story, but a pretty incredible ride you've been on you. in music mm-hmm. um you know including you also have your solo stuff like have you been doing this your whole life like from an early early age or did you like hop into this later well i knew um and it's funny i wonder thinking back to that meow meow show i'm wondering if that is i remember there being a show when there where there was a hole in the stage and i'm wondering if that <laughs> That's that it. was the one. That's it. <laughs> yeah. There was a whole stage, and I had to be very careful not to um, to make sure my uh, foot didn't fall <laughs> fall through that. Um, but that's yeah, that's ringing a bell to me. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so this is something I've wanted to do for um, <clears throat> most of my life, seeing that my dad was a bass player, and mm-hmm. I grew up with stories of him doing this and being on the road. And I knew from an early age that that's what I wanted to do too. I think 
the age of seven, I really remember um, like proclaiming, proclaiming it to my friends during a slumber party. I remember we were all like hanging out in my dad's studio and, and I said out loud, like, I'm a bass player. And I didn't really even know what it meant, but there are just these, these things that I knew that were bases that were around everywhere, um, like kind of leaning up against furniture and stuff. And uh, so I knew it's what I wanted to do, but I didn't actively pursue it. I didn't really get um, a base in my hands until I was about 14. Oh, wow. Um, Seven yeah, years later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, I showed interest and I remember being 12 and we were going on a family trip to England to visit my dad's family. And I remember asking him if we could bring a base so I could practice. And, um, you know, looking back, of course, he said, no, why would he like family of five traveling over overseas? And, um, I wasn't even really playing yet, but I was showing interest and, um, there wasn't a lot of support or, um, yeah, there there wasn't really like any encouragement there for me to start pursuing it. So it wasn't really until one of his best friends actually um, came over and gave me my first bass lesson that I started playing. And that was when I was 14. Interesting. So there was, yeah. there was, he didn't like, he almost didn't want you to get into it. He wasn't into the idea so much. And oh. looking back, it could have been a, for a variety of reasons. Like, I mean, the scene that he was in coming from the British invasion scene, England in the sixties, mm-hmm. you know, like he was in his first band with Ron Wood from mm-hmm. the Rolling Stones mm-hmm. when they were like 15 and um, playing shows with, with the who before they were the who they all kind of cut their teeth together as, as teenagers in England. So coming from that it, literal sex, drugs and rock and roll scene, um, you know, that could have been part of <laughs> part of it um yeah. you know you don't want any of this kid um you know being like his little girl and also it's a tough it's tough you know it wasn't an easy ride for him and a lot of his friends and um probably a, a lot of reasons but luckily for those friends of his um i ended up doing it i ended up getting a base in my hands and, and getting an encouragement from from elsewhere um eventually he came around once he knew they were like okay i guess you're serious uh, okay <laughs> all right but i had to borrow bases for a long time i wasn't allowed to touch his um and uh it took a minute but it eventually happened yeah wow that's incredible i i <laughs> my daughter's not almost nine and i being a musician as well i never wanted to force it on him so mm-hmm. I'll just play around the house and stuff and, and show them music and stuff like that. And she finally, she like picked up uh, a ukulele on her own and has been practicing that in her room and then wanting to get into guitar, which I felt better about because I didn't push it on her. Um, but of course, a very different time and a whole different situation. But it was something I never, I, I almost feel bad that I didn't like try this out, try this out. I just kind of like, okay, I'm going to play for a little while. If you like it, do it, you know. I don't know. I, I I feel like that has better results than um, generally than things that are pushed on kids. Like I feel like I really strongly feel like if I was pressured to play bass or pressured to, if my dad was like, I am bass player. Now my child, you play bass. Like if I feel like that was the situation, I probably wouldn't have wanted it. And I feel like the reason that I still do it today is because he did say no. Mm-hmm. Or because he, because it, because I did have to work for it, because I did have to earn it. And when I wasn't shown encouragement, or when I was told no, basically, I was like, wait a minute, 
hmm, and that made me want it even more, right? Yeah. So, uh, and, and interestingly, a lot of the kids that I was in school with, um, they asked for, they all asked, like, like Green Day was super big at the time, and Billy Joe Armstrong was playing, playing like a blue, baby blue um, guitar. So they all asked for a guitar that looked like that. Mm-hmm. So they all got, like, the PV version of it. Um, and, like, five of my friends literally got this guitar. And I still still hadn't gotten a bass or any guitar or anything. And literally within a year, all the guitars ended up in pawn shop mm-hmm. um, because, you know, and I was like, Oh man, that's, they're so lucky. They got this thing, but I, I, none of them play music to this mm-hmm. day. Um, so I really am actually grateful that things worked out the way they did. And I find when kids choose for themselves or do find their way to instruments, um, it, it, it seems cystic a little bit better because it's, it's their choice, right? It's their interest, not mm-hmm. their parents' interest. Exactly. It's not clouded with anything. Psychology. Else. It's, pure. <laughs> it's all psychology. I wonder how many of those, uh, those Billy Joe knockoffs became someone else's first guitar that have gone on to do crazy things. You know, I, yes. I thought speaking that guitar, exactly. Like I, when I was that age, like I was the same thing, wanted to be Billy Joe Armstrong and, but I never liked Stratocasters. For some reason, I just didn't like them. Like it, it just made me feel like it was everybody's guitar. Like it was everyone plays one of these. Then later in life, I realized why everyone plays those because they're incredible. But I hated it. Like it seemed like, and but then I found out it's a Fernandez. His guitar is a Fernandez. Oh, like the, I don't think they're around anymore. Uh, but I forget the name of it, but it's a Fernandez, not even a Stratocaster. It's like a knockoff that he got <laughs> and still oh, wow. plays to this day, which is incredible that it hasn't been stolen or lost or, or whatnot. But, uh, I mean, how many of those guitars that got took to the pawn shop are now in someone else's hands in their story? You know, it's crazy to think about. Um, Mm -hmm. so when you got you, so man, okay. So your dad, your dad was it the, he was in the creation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I know exactly. I know exactly. (laughs) It comes from, uh, so he had some amazing gear, I'm sure from, and this is the other, this is, a, I'm going off on tangents here, but I had, I had buzz from the Melvins on, uh, and he was talking about how he doesn't play old guitars. And the reason he doesn't play old guitars, cause he doesn't think they sound good. And he said, you know, everyone wants to be Hendrix. Everyone wants to be this Hendrix played new guitars. Uh, uh, all these, all these like vintage now vintage people played new guitars and they sounded great. And, uh, I thought that was an interesting thought because i've never everyone wants the vintage gear everyone wants the 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 worn gear they don't want a relic they want the the real thing and they pay top dollar for it but when you think about it yes they did play new guitars and they sounded incredible and they still sound incredible so when you got your your first bass do you still have that guitar i still have it um i actually use it on that mars Volta tour and i still use it to this day um, Seriously? it's been, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. it's been a workhorse like since I got it. And it's actually funny because when I was a kid, I just wanted vintage gear like my dad. Mm-hmm. But when my dad bought his 1962 Fender Precision, you know, he bought it when it was like four or five years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the one that he used in the creation actually. Um, and it says Fiesta Red, like you see pictures of them uh, using it when it's like nice and shiny and new. And um, I eventually ended up inheriting, inheriting it, unfortunately, because my dad passed away. Mm. But when I was a kid, I was like, oh, I just want vintage gear like that. And when I eventually got my first base, 
um, it was a new, it was a new base and, you know, like little jerk teenager. I was like, Oh man, it's a new one. And, uh, but it's funny. Cause it was like, I took it to, um, down on Sunset Boulevard. There was like a strip of just like guitar shops and, uh, the guitar center is still there. There's a Sam Ash. And at the time they're more like independent shops. I went to like freedom guitar and bought like a pick guard. Um, and then I bought some Chrome knobs from the store down the street and kind of made it my own and made it look more vintagey. Um, because it was just like a $300 base, you know, mm-hmm. and I changed out the pickups and kind of made it my own. And however many years later, I guess that instrument is now considered vintage. Like every nick and scratch in that thing is mine. I put it there. It's been around the world with me. And in a way, I'm really glad that I did get something that was new and made it my own. And, and I love it. And just because something is vintage, I was actually talking to someone from the vendor custom shop, interestingly, um, about this. They said, just because something is vintage, doesn't mean it sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like, it's not a given because every piece of wood is different. Um, it all has, a, they all have their own character and different years are different. Um, different protocols were happening at the factory in different years, different paint was used and, um, different machines. And, you know, there's just so many different factors. So just because something is vintage doesn't mean it sounds great. Like, there's some like squire instru- instruments from from the 80s, you know, that like people claim are just just tops. So I think it just really depends. It really depends on the player. It depends on the the character of the instrument, and you just you just never know. Um, but I, I think I'm glad that I got a new bass as my first mm-hmm. bass after after all. Did you get? Was that. it a Mexican Fender? Mexican bass, yeah, perfect. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's I want to talk about this too because that's a uh, there's so many things to go out here, but it's all in the hands. Like I really feel it's all in the hands. I say it all the time. You could hand someone Hendrix's Strat, and they're not going to play it like him. It's not going to sound like him. It's him playing it that sounds that way. It's you playing your your P bass that makes it sound that way. Like it's 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 it's. well, it's an instrument. It's an instrument to get your energy through the amplification to the crowd. Like it's 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 a piece of wood that can be manipulated by who's playing it and, and magnets and everything else, electricity. <clears throat> you can take you can take a Squire Telecaster and throw some Les Paul pickups in there. It'll sound like a it sounds amazing. You've spent one hundred eighty nine dollars on the guitar. You know, like it's all in the hands. I don't know if you feel that way. I feel that way specifically just because I, there's certain people you can tell who it is before mm-hmm. you even know, or you've seen the like Spotify comes up or something. You're like, Oh, that's so-and-so. Uh, and it's not the instrument. It's, it's them. Um, and what's so cool about your story, that, that bass has been with you all through all of this. Like you say, every scratch is yours. All that stuff. I used to feel that way about like wallets and things. I would carry the same wallet for like 10 or 15 years just because it's been everywhere with me every like it and it's worn in and like it's falling apart but i would hang on to it for some reason because i think that's been to literally everywhere i've been unless i was in bed or something it's been on my person Mm -hmm. and there's something about that like imprinting on objects and energies and stuff that really like get my mind going um but i love that that you still use that base and you said you were like customizing this thing. So you not only did you take to base and start learning, but you decided to start like working on it. 
Yeah, because I wanted it to be like, a, you know, my, my ideal base was like a vintage base. And that base came with like plastic knobs and like, like a white pick guard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a, it was a quote unquote cheap base. Um, your parents aren't going to buy their kids, like, you know, for the most part, the most expensive base out there, you know, it was like, I think it was only like two or 300 bucks at the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I wanted it to look vintage, you know? So I like got the chrome knobs. I got the, the tortoiseshell pickguard cause that's what my dad had mm-hmm. on his bases and, um, and switched out the pickups and just worked like worked on it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and made it my own cause I was, I, I had a, an ideal in my head. Um, and it ended up being like a really, a really cool base and I'll take it to sessions and it's, it's still to this day engineers favor that base over, over like a quote unquote higher quality one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, I'm taking it to a session this week because that's just, I just know it records really well and people really like it. Um, so it's just got a character, um, and I definitely, like you said, I believe that just because someone's got a, you know, uh, $3,000 instrument doesn't mean it's going to sound great. Mm-hmm. Depends on who's playing it. There's a lot of factors. Um, sure, things like different wood and quality and all that come into play. But at the end of the day, who is at the end? Who Who is who's manipulating that instrument, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I always think about, I had a, a teacher in college who was just this incredible um, incredible musician. He, he was Lebanese and he, I played in the, in the Middle Eastern orchestra when I was there and he ran the orchestra. Um, but he also ran classes. Uh, I was an ethnomusicology major, so he ran an ethnomusicology class and he could play the heck out of anything, literally anything like one day, like different flutes and violins and string instruments and like just all these instruments from all over the world. And one day he literally brought in a fig leaf like a leaf off of a fig tree uh-huh. and played that. What? Like he, he put it up to his mouth uh-huh. and played it and was able to play eight notes. Um, it, it was, it was amazing. He also did the same thing at the time they had um, uh, those machines with transparencies. Mm-hmm. They're like projectors. A where you would write or on whatever. Like yeah. I can't remember what they're called now, but, mm-hmm. um, but they'd have transparencies that you would write on and they projected onto mm-hmm. the screen. So he took one of those, transparencies like a, like a piece of plastic and he played the transparency like put it up in his mouth uh-huh. manipulated it and somehow got notes out of it and played a transparency so it's like there you go it's like like depending on the player you can make music out of out of virtually anything yeah it's incredible that see i remember like playing you could put a blade of grass between your thumbs in that little gap between your thumbs and you blow really hard mm-hmm. and it screams like it's like mm-hmm. an annoying but how be able to manipulate a, a a leaf or a blade of grass or a a, a, a transparency? Yeah, it's incredible. Have you seen that documentary? It might get loud. No. Oh, okay, it's Jack mm-hmm. White, Jimmy Page, and yeah. uh, the Edge, and they all get the them edge, together. Yeah, I've heard of it? Yeah. Oh man, I gotta see it. So I he, still, it's on my list. Still. He takes a Jack White takes a piece of wood and nails like a pickup to it and winds some some wire around it and plugs it into an amp. And starts like plucking away at it and making this amazing music. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, mm-hmm. it's that simple. It's a piece there of wood go. and a string. Like that's it. It's like those. It's like those bass instruments, which is like a broomstick, a bucket, and uh, a piece of string, right? Yeah. Like a bucket, like a metal bucket turned over, and a broomstick and a piece of string, and they're 
you know, they're playing it like a, like a bass. Exactly. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Life will find a way. Life will find a way to make music. And, uh, mm -hmm. man, this is, this is, this is awesome. So you're, you're working on this bass, you're doing your thing. So you went to college for, you said ethnomusicology. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And playing in a middle Eastern orchestra. Yep. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but in the middle East, there's a different, uh, set of notes, right? The different, um, different scales or whatever that we don't use in the mm -hmm. Western world. Right. Right. That's why it sounds foreign, I guess, to us. But the how is learning that, like, and embracing that style uh, or those sounds that aren't as familiar? Well, interestingly, I, that's when I started playing upright bass. Okay. Because I, I needed an instrument with no frets on it to get all of those microtones uh -huh. that we don't that we don't have. You know, it's like there's more than um, there's more than twelve tones, right? There's yeah. like half laps, and um, there's lots of microtones in there. So that's when I started playing upright was in the Middle Eastern Orchestra to get all those microtones. And there was like a violin, there was a cello, there's no fret on any of those instruments. Mm. Um, but I'm also half Lebanese. So I grew up already with that aesthetic in my, in my mind with like, mm. with the old timers from the old country listening to that kind of music. So, um, and eating the food. So I already was familiar with the music and was thrilled at the opportunity to actually perform it in that setting. That's incredible. I did not know that. That makes a lot more sense mm -hmm. then. It's like, it's in you. It's part of you. That's beautiful. Yeah. Man. Okay. So Mars Volta, did that come around after college, like soon after college, or was it way later? I met them all while I was in college. Okay. And that was, and, that was in mm -hmm. Southern California. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. How did how did that whole thing come to be? Because I that's one thing I don't know is how how you got together with those guys and how that band kind of formed. All all I know is it was already like it had to be on the internet. Yeah, it was on the internet. We just saw it like it was a new thing, and and we went and and saw it. But the whole like origin of that, I have no idea how how you guys all got together. So I um. My friend Ike, who I already knew, um, was playing in de facto okay. with them, with those guys. Mm -hmm. And it was like a, it was a side project they were doing, like a dub project. And um, so I knew Ike just from living in Southern California, playing in bands. And I went to high school with Ike's little brother, um, Brandon, who was also a bass player. Okay. So I already knew those guys. And Ike called me one day and said that... Um, that at the driving had just broken up and two of those guys um, were looking to form a new band and he was already playing in a band with them, but they were looking for something new um, and called me up and said, if I wanted to, to meet them and start something up. And it was really as simple as that. Um, they came out to Hollywood and Ike um, and Omar and Jeremy um came out to Hollywood where I was living and, um, yeah, met up, like went to a coffee shop, went to a park, hung out. And next thing I knew, um, I was out, headed out to Long Beach where they had their, their studio mm -hmm. spot and we were writing phones before, before we knew it. Man. Okay. That makes sense. And, and I, I just remember being so blown away by that. I was almost terrified <laughs> at that show because, uh, it, it we were all from Alaska, so we moved down in 2000, 2000. So we missed 
at the drive. We missed all that stuff. We missed all these incredible uh, bands because we only got to see who came up to Alaska. And it was Ozzy and Pantera and White Zombie and and uh, ZZ Top and then uh, like Fishbone or or Agent Orange or bands like that that would come to the small club. Um, so we missed it all. We were all listening to this stuff and we missed it. And then all of a sudden being in the same room, like watching this new thing, I remember looking over at the corner by the bathrooms and Cedric was there and it looked like, and maybe you can confirm this. This is just, this isn't like a Mars Volta. Like there's people that look at that band and at the drive-in like, uh, like gods, this is not what I'm doing, but, uh, I've just always wondered this. It looked like he was, so you remember when bubblegum stick bubblegum used to come in like the 17 packs. Mm -hmm. It looked like he was taking an entire 17 pack of juicy fruit gum and shoving mm -hmm. it in his cheek, just staring mm -hmm. at the drums like this, like just fucking crazy, shoving it in his mouth. So it got so huge. And then all of a sudden this tuft of hair, I'm six, five. So this tuft of hair comes across below my chin. I look down and it's Omar. Cause he's very small. I had no idea how small comes underneath here. He goes on stage. You come out. John Theodore starts playing. Cedric runs out. What the hell's going on? But his mouth was this big on the set. Did, does mm -hmm. that something that actually happened? I'm wondering it's, if I'm making this up. It's possible. So it sounded all like garbled and like, blah, 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 like, like it was supposed to be that way, but literally just like packing it in the cheek. Mm -hmm. And then I remember mm -hmm. Omar, you guys didn't have actual CD, just CDRs. And he was drawing pictures on all of the, the packaging. Mm, yep. 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 Handwriting them all. Yeah. And he right. drew a clock with two penises as hands and it said time to rock. Oh, wow. There you go. That's cool. Like, did, you st did you get one of those? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it yeah. was, uh, we, <laughs> we still laugh about it to this day, but, uh, mm -hmm. It was just a, it was an awesome show. It was like a, a formative show because we hadn't started touring yet at that point. So it was still something that was really like influential to us. And so all these guys, uh, myself, and we started a band called Anatomy of a Ghost, which then went on to become Portugal the Man. And so mm -hmm. all of those guys were there watching that show in that 50 people. Oh, wow. So what you were doing was, was like influencing us at the time, which was super cool. Um, anyways, I just wanted to ask that question because... I have no idea if that was true or not, but I remember it in my head. I don't know if you get those things with shows where you think you saw something or something mm -hmm. maybe appeared that way, uh, mm -hmm. especially the smaller shows. Anyway, so from Mars Volta, where did you go from Mars Volta? Um, I went to, I started playing with um, Tim Burgess from the Charlottesville UK. Okay. And he broke off for a bit and did a, did a solo thing. Mm -hmm. And I, um, he's li he was living in LA for a while. So I knew him from here. Um, and so I was playing in his band with him. We toured the UK. We did, um, uh, we did a tour opening up for the Dare which was amazing. And then we did a couple shows opening up for the Rolling Stones, which for me was like, Jesus Christ, com completely mind blowing. Yeah. I, I played my first arena show with him. And uh, I did Wembley and then um, Manchester Evening News Arena. And those were both with the Rolling Stones, which was just full circle um, for me. Because dad, when dad was in the creation, mm -hmm. uh, he opened up for the Stones in 1967. Mm -hmm. And that was Brian Jones' last, last tour. Um, and then, you know, fast forward however many years later, 
uh, Ron Woods and the Stones now. And that was a cool moment for me because it was like, you know, one of my dad's childhood friends. And mm-hmm. so that was just a great, whole great full circle scenario for me. Um, so I did that. Uh, after Tim, I did Baruch Assault. I uh, just kind of did a, yeah, I did a few keeping it moving. Um, I love with, with the touring yeah so that was that was so cool for me too because i was that kid in the front row right at the like when they were on tour with hole and it was like hole and brook salt and i was like the kid in the front row singing along again full circle moment fast forward um however many years and then i'm in the band singing those songs <laughs> and like just my mind just kept getting blown over and over and over again <laughs> so great oh my god so fun so playing Wembley with the Rolling Stones, was your dad still alive at that time? He wasn't. Oh, no, he wasn't, sadly. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I I lost my dad in 2019. It's it's terrible. And mm-hmm. I, uh, but you knowing it came full circle, like that's yeah. like a tear moment right there. Like, uh, being being in that that fucking stage and and having knowing you're doing the same thing that you're your dad was doing like it, so cool and it was all i wanted to do all i ever wanted to do was tour you know mm-hmm. and to be able to finally get to that place where um where i'm like i did it i'm mm-hmm. i'm touring and i've been doing it for for 20 years and and i i feel like i i mean from the first moment i left in a van on tour um and was sleeping on floors i was like i made it that's it this is great and <laughs> and luckily it's kicked <laughs> keeps getting better and better but like you know i'm playing at you know to 50 people in portland and i'm stoked mm-hmm. you know like just living my best life and it's um to be able to talk about that however many years ago that was mm-hmm. and to really just think of that time so fondly and just be grateful that i'm still get to do it you know mm-hmm very lucky yeah yeah sleeping on floors touring in vans Mm -hmm. if we knew that was the good old days when it was happening you know like uh i god i can't tell you how many times i woke up on someone's floor and it was some kid's Mm -hmm. house that we thought Mm -hmm. was of age uh and it wasn't and the parents wake up like who are you in my kitchen (laughs) why are these people in in the basement like who are these guys and then some would make you breakfast some would kick you out What's going on, guys? This is Dewey. I want to tell you about some new releases coming up from Equal Vision Records. As you guys know, Equal Vision Records is my family, and so are these bands. I really want you to check these out. We've got Hot Water Music with their 10th studio album, Vows, out May 10th, featuring guest appearances by Dallas Green of City and Color, Thrice, The Interrupters, and Brendan and Daniel from Turnstile. See them on the 30th anniversary tour with Quicksand in the States in May and June and Europe in November. Hotwatermusic.com for more info. We also have Be Well with their new 7-inch, A Tap I Can't Turn Off, out now. First new music in two years from this band. This band is incredible, featuring members of Battery, Bane, Darkest Hour, and Fairweather. See them on tour with I Am The Avalanche in June. Equalvision.com for more info on that. And just your general information on Equal Vision Records, you're always going to find something you like at Equalvision.com. Go there for vinyl and merch from all of your favorite bands. Check out Hot Water Music's new record and Be Well's new 7-inch now. 
What's going on, guys? This is Dewey from Peer Pleasure, and I want to tell you about our newest sponsor, DistroKid. DistroKid distributes your music across all online platforms. They are an amazing company. I've enjoyed working with them the last few weeks, and they're going to be with us for a while, and I really, really appreciate that. I love working with great companies, and DistroKid is one of them. Uh, they have an awesome thing they're doing right now called Splits. Now, if you're working as most people are online, doing collaborations with people from all over the country, all over the world, as easy as that is with the internet, uh, you want to get those people paid when you put that music online. And splits can do that. You can add an unlimited amount of collaborators to any track. You can change the splits at any time. You can add or remove collaborators at any time. You can see previous splits. And all your collaborators are going to have to do is sign up for a DistroKid membership, a DistroKid account, so they can get paid. And as always, DistroKid never takes a cut. You and your collaborators get 100% of the earnings in total. A couple other awesome things that they do is they set up an official artist YouTube channel. Uh, you can use Spotify Canvas, synced lyrics, promo card to promote your release on social media, a mini video for your socials as well. There's just so many awesome things about using DistroKid. And like I said, I don't advertise things I don't use, haven't signed up for. I have signed up for this. It is a breeze, literally a breeze. And you can get going right away. So definitely check out DistroKid. And I want to give you 30% off your first year's DistroKid membership at any level. That is distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP for Peer Pleasure Podcast. Once again, that is 30% off your first year's DistroKid membership at any level. Distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP. Go check out DistroKid right now. Distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP for 30% off. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living. And every week, I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others. Photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy. And I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com and I'll see you there. Hey guys, this is Dewey from Peer Pleasure and I wanted to tell you about Premium Pleasure, our premium subscription service that's available now. peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the website. There's three tiers, tier one, tier two, and tier three. Tier one is $5 a month. It gets you the ad-free experience. Tier two gets you access to the Peer Pleasure Passcast. It gets you access to the videos of the interviews. It gets you merch discounts. Tier three is $20 a month. That gets you all of that. It gets you the Passcast, gets you the video footage, discounts on merchandise, and monthly Zoom calls well, with myself and other guests. We're going to have all kinds of stuff in there for you. There's all kinds of stuff in there for you now. There is, uh, I believe, 30 to 40 videos of these interviews. There is uh, multiple episodes of the Passcast. The Passcast is a podcast that I'd started separately that is me and another podcaster or me and a guest uh, discussing a deep dive into their favorite episode of Peer Pleasure. Um, so there's a bunch of those on there. So so-and-so and I would talk about the Chino Moreno episode. So-and-so and I would talk about uh, the Yvette Young episodes. And we would do a deep dive and tell where they came from, how we got the guest, stories of uh, that weren't discussed on the podcast or maybe weren't in there. Um, it's just another glimpse behind the curtain. 
So that's the big deal with this premium service is giving you a glimpse behind the curtain of how the podcast is made, gives you access to things I'm doing and things that we're doing with the show, um, gives you, you know, ad free stuff. It gives you just all kinds of, of things that we could throw in there to help make it a valuable part of your month. Cause I put everything out there on this show. I put everything I have into this show. Um, so being able to give you guys that little bit of extra is a big deal to me and having your support is a big deal to me because if we don't support our artists and creatives, we're not going to have any left. So I appreciate it. Peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the website. Go sign up today and get some of this premium pleasure. Uh, wow. But then you, you know, you're, you're just sweaty and disgusting and you get in the van and just keep going. It's the best time ever. It's the best. When you're young, <laughs> right? <laughs> I wouldn't do it now, but what back then, that's all I knew. It was, it was the best time. It was the best time ever. Yeah. And then yeah. you get those huge opportunities that you're having. And then it's just, you, you, you probably even think back during those times, like of the journey that got you there, right? Like when you got that gig, was that like an audition deal or was, did they know who you were and, and, and called you up? For which one? With the Charlton's UK or, or um Oh with him? Tim, yeah. yeah. Um I just knew him. I just okay. knew him from LA and I knew him. My my family um has the cat and fiddle in Hollywood. So mm. he was a he was a regular there and uh so I see him there all the time and was also a creation fan and knew my dad and just was uh always hanging out. So just kinda he was like, Hey, you wanna come on tour with me? And I was like, Yeah, sure. That'd be great. Yeah. Playing a few, playing a few bangers. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's how I, you know, and, I, and I've been lucky because that's how how most things have kind of happened. I mean, you know, a lot of what we do is like networking, right? Networking and just kind of yeah. who you know and and recommendations and and um, it seems like that's the way a lot of this a lot of this stuff happens. Mm-hmm. It's just by by your friends, by people you know. That's absolutely a hundred percent correct. And even with this, like this show, like you look back at the episodes and it's like, Oh, wait a minute, that person, that person, that person. Well, that person was brought to me by this person or suggested by this person or introduced by this person. It's kind of like you can throw, throw your network on the internet and kind of show mm-hmm. what your network network is. Um, but one thing I think that people miss in any any aspect of life, especially maybe in music and and um, uh, anything like this, where you, where you're doing like a gig work, right? Like you're you're hired to play with this person, you're hired to play with this person, you get this opportunity with this person, this person. You can get the opportunities all day, but if you can't make good on those, you're gonna stop right there. Like it's mm-hmm. it, there's people that that uh, you know, oh man, if I had the opportunity to play with this person, like. I would do this, this, and this. It's like, you may not get along with everybody. You may not understand your role and, and uh, be someone that people don't want to work with. Right. Like you can get the opportunities all day long, but you have to be uh, you have to, to make right on those. Otherwise it's not Mm going to go anywhere. So Mm -hmm. you could hand a hundred people an audition for, for pink or share or anything and 99 of them aren't going to get it. And it's for a specific reason, probably like, you know, the fact that you've gotten these opportunities and made right on these opportunities and continue to, to use, use that is incredible. I mean, it speaks to your character. It speaks to all kinds of things. Um, 
but that that game i i mean i always reference that hired gun documentary uh mm-hmm. watching just you know because there's people that can play circles around so many people and they never get mm-hmm. gigs because mm-hmm. they don't have the other factor mm-hmm. and so tell me a little bit about that because just having to live in those situations right like where you you're you're playing in a band of somebody that's like you're you're supposed to make them look good right like um i'm i'm rambling on here but like like juan from mars volta who i've had on the show before his accident we were talking about you know if he's playing with this person he plays with these pedals and this amp because that's how the person wants to sound mm-hmm. it's not it's not up to him <clears throat> or uh blasco who plays with ozzy like same thing like he plays what Ozzy wants to hear. Right. He gets to bring his own flavor, but he has to be cool with being a part of the team versus the person out front. So tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about that because that part fascinates me about what you do. Yeah, sure. I mean, when you're, when you're a hired gun, you know, referring back to the documentary and um, like when you're out there supporting an artist or a band or whoever um, you're out there to support them right you're out there to be part of the team and it's it's there's getting the gig and then there's also keeping the gig right um so what do you do to make sure that you're you're key in in making the environment positive and pleasant doing what needs to be done like taking it upon yourself to be like um okay yeah like 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 what pedals do i need is this with a is this song played with a picker fingers or is it, what kind of bass should I use? What kind of sound should I have? And just being able to, to mold your sound to what the song needs. Right. Yeah. Um, and when I'm working on these gigs where you have an MD, like the share gig or the peak gig or Gwen Stefani, you have an MD, um, you know, a lot of the songs are like, they have a keyboard bass, you know, when I'm playing with share, it's like the leave is played on the key bass. So, you know, I get a key, key bass rig and a lot of these, a lot of these gigs, I'm playing multiple instruments, whether it's upright bass, keyboard bass, electric bass. Maybe I'm playing electric bass with a pick sometimes, sometimes with fingers. It just kind of depends. And us as players need to be able to support the artist and have them hear what they want to hear. You know, you need to be able to deliver that um, and deliver that with a smile, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure, mm-hmm. I can, sure, I can do that. You know, <laughs> if the MD has some, some sort of demand, um, sure, no problem. Great. Like I remember for one gig, um, I was like, sure, no problem. Sure, I can play keys on half the songs. Sure thing, no problem. What did I do? I went home and like signed up for piano lessons. You know, and I was like, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure this out. <laughs> I'm gonna figure it out. Um, and it ended up working out really great because that's just, like just furthered um, my skill set and another thing that I can bring to the table, mm-hmm. and it makes you more versatile which makes you um, hold on to these gigs. And like with the pink gig, I've been there 15 years and I've been able to grow with her. You know, she's grown as an artist. I've grown as a player. Um, different things are required of us now that weren't required 15 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. The shows have grown. We're doing stadiums now. Um, the, the instruments, like we have like parts of it, uh, the gig where it's like a, an acoustic set where it's like uh, a string section. You know, so it's like that's when I bring out the upright and I play um, Arco style, you know, and it's stuff I've had to work on over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's all part of of supporting the people that you're playing with and you're sharing that stage with and being willing to grow 
and as a player and being willing to say yes and open up your mind to new possibilities and, and just being as versatile as you can be mm-hmm. while being, as being easy to get along with and hang with. So it's all part of the package. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I always admire, I mean, the, the amount of, and for people listening, MD, you mean musical director, right? Like, or like a yeah, person exactly. that's in charge of the band and exactly. like a, not a conductor, but like that kind of thing where we need this, this, that he know that he or she knows exactly what needs to be done. This has to sound like this, this song, you do this, keeping track of it all. So mm-hmm. the artist can just come out and do the songs. Right. Okay. Uh, I just want to, I want to clarify that because um, I've heard that, that abbreviation before in the same context. I've never, I've never played in a band the size that has a musical director. So uh, mm-hmm. it's just interesting how much logistics go into doing tours like this and uh, of that size. And I will ask you this: a side note, does that song get stuck in your head? Believe by Which, share. Oh God, we, I was oh. actually having <laughs> I was having a conversation about that very song um, within the last couple of weeks. Actually, I ran really? into somebody, somebody who did a cover of that song, um, and I've heard a lot of cool covers of that song. Actually, um, it's a lot of fun. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, but so fun, right? Yeah. I mean, so, so much fun. Yeah. I had a buddy who could say, uh, all you had to do was say that. Hey, Joe, do you believe? Mm-hmm. No. And there then by lunch, he'd be there. coming back and just be like, still there, man. Still there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like one day I'll, I'll ask that question to somebody with that in that camp because, uh, yeah, it, it gets stuck in your head. It's stuck in my head right now just that we're talking about it. Uh, do, you have a, do you have a song that helps you get, get earworms out? Do you have like a go-to that I helps don't. you get rid of earworms? I don't. Do you? I do. I do. It's a song that my fourth grade teacher taught me, and I'm old Irish, an old Irish song. Really? She was, she was Irish, yeah. That's specific. <laughs> and I, I know. I was like, uh, there's a dear little plant that grows on our aisle. It was St. Patrick himself, sure, that said it. And the sun on his labor with gladness did sign, and the dew from his eye often wet it. It shines through the bog, through the break and the mireland. And they call it the dear little shamrock of Ireland. The dear little shamrock, the sweet little shamrock, the dear little sweet little shamrock of Ireland. And that always does the trick. It works. <laughs> it works. <laughs> Man, I need to, yeah, I need to get something like that because it's yeah. Be stuck I don't know why forever. I chose that one, but it's been in my it's, that's been my my go to since fourth grade, so it, it works. Man. So. Like, how does, what does your routine look like? Like on, so say you're on, say you're touring with Pink. Like, what is your like daily routine on something like a tour that size? I think people are really fascinated on that because they see like some behind the scenes stuff, but like, I'm always fascinated on that too, especially nowadays, what that tour looks like, like the day that now there's, there's at venue, there's master tour, there's all these different things uh, that help make things easier, but then it's such a production like, is there an advanced crew that goes to the next date, like Springsteen does, you know, like uh, to make sure everything's happening? Like, how does that what does it look like for you? Because you kind of sure. you have to be on point, but also you're only technically like most musicians technically working that hour and a half, two hours a night. And the rest is kind of killing time, warming up, warming down. But what is your routine like on a, on a tour like that? Yeah, so my routine, I mean, again, depends on the size of the tour, what's going on. But on the last, the last pink tour that we did, um, we were doing stadiums in Europe and we had over 200 crew, 200 people on that tour. 
250, something like that. And we didn't have just one advanced crew. We had two, I think it was two advanced crews where they were going out like way far in advance because there was so much rigging involved and there's so much preparation. So some of the people on, we met like once or twice during the whole tour because we just weren't ever in the same place Mm because they were so far ahead. So, so far ahead prepping them, advancing the next, next shows. Um, and so there's a lot of moving parts and it takes, it takes everybody, um, to do their thing to make it all work. Right. Um, so for, I mean, I feel like for compared to a lot of the, a lot of the folks out there, like, you know, the band's like, Hey man, we're just, <laughs> we just got to play the songs. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's the fun, so much fun. And, um, and, you know, for us, I think a lot of it is making sure that we do what we need to do to make sure we have the stamina to to do the shows night after night and to make sure we're we're turned on and giving it our all. You know, like like when you're out there for over two years, not every night, you're not going to feel great every night. Mm-hmm. You know, not everybody's going to feel 100 percent every night. So I think a lot of it, too, is is us carrying each other. Like if the boss is having a tough night or her, 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 her throat's tired or singing, her voice is tired. Like we'll do what we can do to, again, we're there to support her and lift her up and give more energy and make sure we're all like, you know, amping it up. And, um, a lot of what we do on, on tour, like we have yoga written into our tour schedule every day, actually like on the schedule Mm -hmm. before sound check. So like physical health, mental health, um, all that is also really important. Um, of course, like what you eat and making sure you get sleep, all those things, but making sure we do what we need to do to stay grounded because you're away from your families, your friends, you're away from home mm-hmm. for so long. Mm-hmm. So everyone's got their own, their own practice and things that work for them, but things that work for me are definitely yoga. Um, I have a, a morning practice, you know, meditation, journaling, um, just doing those things that make me feel grounded and centered out mm-hmm. there. Have that, has, has that been something that's been present in your life for a long time? The mindfulness piece, like meditation, uh, just, just being in tune or is that something you've come yeah. into later? That has, that's been in my orbit probably since I was in my early twenties, I would say, um, after losing my dad, I, that's when I really was like, got into, okay, I need support here. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started going to therapy. That's when I started looking towards like, um, having a support system, right. Um, whether that be a therapist or whether that be like books, you know, mm-hmm. books about meditation or mindfulness or um, the things that can just kind of kind of support you when you're going through life because uh, challenges are very um, <laughs> they show up quite a, quite often. So mm-hmm. it's like, how do we get through these challenges? So I would say definitely over the last twenty years, um, I've been on the quest towards um, self discovery and mindfulness and, and all those things. And my practice has changed over the years, depending on where I'm at. Um, but it's definitely um, something that I really find important to, to staying sane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me ask you this. You don't, you don't have to answer this, but <clears throat> when you, so when you lost your dad uh, and he left 
I, I assume a lot of instruments and things to you and, and things like that, or, or at least some, right? Like that's you. And I ask you this because of my own personal uh, stuff with, with losing my dad. Do you remember how long it took for like putting that bass on or sitting down with it and touching something that they spent so much time with when it, when it stopped hurting and became maybe more of an inspiration you know what i mean like mm-hmm. like something like in mine super cheesy like my dad had a had a car that they passed down to me and it smelled like his aftershave every day mm-hmm. old spice aftershave the whole car for a year and a half afterwards still smelled like that i'd get in there and i would lose it because he sat here right like he there's <laughs> there's a it looks like a crime scene on one side because he used to eat his lunch on his lunch break in his car <laughs> and he opened a can of coke and it exploded mm-hmm. and it went everywhere and he didn't get a chance to clean it before everything happened and i still haven't cleaned it it's still mm-hmm. there it doesn't smell like him anymore but it still has these things like his stuff's in the dash compartment uh if it is there a point when it becomes like more of a healing kind of uh inspirational kind of thing picking up those objects for you or is it still crushing you know it's and of course everyone's different but it's taken me a long time to get through all of it like and and i think it's multi-layered um after he passed my dad's studio Mm -hmm. that i spent so much time in as a kid pretty much was remained a museum for for years, you know, it took a long time for me to change anything in there. Um, all the stuff he had up on the walls and the furniture and all this. So just bit by bit over time, I was like, Hmm, maybe I will, um, you know, reorganize the cables. Maybe I will, um, you know, maybe take one of his bases out of the case. And it was just very, very, very slow, 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 slow process. And it's a process that I'm still going through. Interestingly, that Fiesta Red Fender Precision that I was telling you about, the 1962 one, was his prized possession. And he literally wanted to be buried with that base. That's how much it meant to him. And my mom was like, all right, Kim, first of all, you're going to be cremated. Mm-hmm. Secondly, that base should go to your daughter because she plays bass. And what are you going to do with it You know, when you're not around, when you're dead? So that base did come to me, but... Um, literally it's only been in the last few months that I took it out of the case. Really? And yeah, like I would take it out of the case and I like never, I just never felt comfortable playing it again. It's like the museum piece. It's like I left the strings on it the way that he had it. I'd left everything just exactly how he left it. It wasn't until yes, I don't remember when, but definitely within the last several months, maybe four or five months ago that I actually took it out of its case. And I said, okay, it's been 20 years. Mm-hmm. I brought it to the Fender custom shop. Um, and the guys down there, like you guys, it's time. I'm, I'm ready for, for this space to be used again. Um, and I'm ready for it to come out of the box. I've come out of the case and they helped me fix it up, set it up. I actually changed the strings. Ooh, God forbid. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it was all, it just wasn't really in working condition, you know? And, um, and I had, and it was a really, it was difficult, 
but it was also very cathartic mm-hmm. um, because he, my dad passed away 20 years ago last October. Mm. So it literally been 20 years. I'm like, all right. So I started using the base and um, kind of made it my own. And I feel like that was very healing for me and all in due time. It took a long time, but it was healing for me because I was like, okay, now this base has gone through different incarnations over the years and now it's ready for its new incarnation. And that is with me and the next generation. And I'm actually going to use it again. It's not sitting in a case. It was made to be used. It was made to be loved. And, um, and it was made to make music. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it took a while, but I, it eventually happened. Nice. Um, it, it takes time. That's beautiful. I, and it, it's kind of a, a good metaphor for life in general, where, you know, your parents give you everything they can give you and then you take it and make it your own. Just the lessons they teach you, the, 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 the physical objects they give you, like you, you then carry them on however you're going to do it. That's super incredible. And, and giving that you have, must have a really good relationship with Fender because be able to hand over something like that to them. Of course, they're the ones that should do it because they know what they're doing, but to be able to hand something like that over to them and say, okay, you know, let's, let's do this. Well, and those are the same me, strings that have been on the whole time since he passed. The, since he passed. Yeah. Oh and and for him, for him, I was like, uh, you know, like for it to go back to Fender mm-hmm. where like, like that base started its journey there mm-hmm. at Fender, right. Mm-hmm. Made its way to England mm-hmm. <laughs> and my dad ended up acquiring it. And for it to, again, another full circle moment, right. For it to go to England and then travel with him, um, back to the States and, um, end up being a, a fixture in my childhood that I was never allowed to touch. Mm-hmm. Right. It was like, that's also what was such a, a such a, a difficult thing for me to, to embrace that instrument. Cause I grew up never being allowed to touch it. Mm-hmm. Like, don't even look at it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so for it to go back to Fender where that basis journey started, mm-hmm. um, I felt was very, um, it's just a very a, a poignant, poignant moment. And, um, and for those guys to be like, yeah, you know, this base was built a couple miles from here mm-hmm. and, um, and now it's got a whole new life, you know? Yeah. Um, it was just very, it was very cool. Full a circle. Lot, a lot of energy there with that instrument. Yeah. Well. And, and they told me something really cool about, um, I can't remember exactly, but they got super into, um, the physics of it and how, you know, we were talking about different vintage instruments sound different than just whatever makes it old doesn't make it mm-hmm. uh, sound great. When you play an instrument, uh, and I don't, again, I don't remember exactly the physics of it, but the vibration that you are putting into that instrument gets imprinted into the wood mm. and the wood remembers it. The wood remembers those notes and the wood remembers um the the notes that are being the vibration is all frequency and vibration right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and so all that's being imprinted into the instrument so he said something really cool to me like every note your dad's ever played lives in this instrument like literally like lives in this wood like in the cells of this wood so i thought that was just such a cool um a cool thing you know and all again all the nicks and, and scratches are, are his mm-hmm. on that instrument right like where he held his hand and there's an, a picture of him in the 60s holding the instrument um when it was still shiny and new and now that i've got it like where his where his hand was right there like it's worn down mm-hmm. right so i have a picture of him actually like in the position where now you know where it's got like a like a 
like a worn spot. And so it's, it's, it's really cool. It's really cool. But I'm now I'm making, now I'm playing new notes. Mm-hmm. Now I'm playing, playing new music in there and putting my own impression in there. So, um, so very, is is very cool. That's amazing. Very, very special. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I love that story. And, and, uh, thank you for sharing that too. I know it's, it's difficult sometimes to talk about these things, but, um, if you just sat there and like on a table and just ran your hand across it, trying to wear it down, you think how long that would take you. And you think about how many hours and hours mm-hmm. and hours those hands were on that thing. Like it's probably mm-hmm. similar to how many, like how many hours you were held as a baby, you know, like it, you go from that, put the baby down, grab the base, you know, mm-hmm. like the same, uh, and the fact that someone, uh, you know, that you get to use that now after all those years is is such a cool thing. Fender, Fender, and this is not a Fender advertisement podcast, but <laughs> Fender, I have so many amazing stories about Fender, and uh, I mean this 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 one is incredible. But the, um, Zach from Portugal, the man had his bass stolen, a bass he loved, his P bass, loved it. So without him knowing, Fender took pictures of it, basically made a relic, an exact replica of this base, wear spots, scratches, everything. Oh, wow. And they flew his mom down from Alaska to hand it to him on tour. Fender, on their own, just said, hey, let's do this for Zach. How cool is that? Like that that companies would do, a company as big as Fender does not have to do that stuff. But they do those mm-hmm. things like they mm-hmm. it's that's I'm sure a lot of the reason they're still around besides making amazing instruments. But that stuff happens. It's so cool. It's really special. You know? Yeah. Um, it's so special. Yeah. And it's it's and he's still using that thing. Like <laughs> it's exactly yeah. and, and it's all again, it's like it's all relationships, right? Yeah. It's all at the end of the day, it's like it's about connection and about about connecting with people. And um when it when a big company like that can can maintain those connections and as players it's like we appreciate that so much and mm-hmm. of course we're gonna i mean you know he's he, he's like you said he still uses it and yeah. it's not just about the guitar or the bass right mm-hmm. it's about what it represents and the connection um and the, and the connections that they represent yeah absolutely absolutely it's it's a it's a huge deal someone that could just send you 50 of one of these guitars you know like here's 50 of them go throw them off a bridge like to be able to take that kind of care and stuff, um, mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense. And, and, uh, what did you end up doing with the strings when they took them? Did you, you kept them good. Yeah. I still have I was them. hoping so that there wasn't just mm-hmm. like revamp this thing. And, and whatever, that's yeah. Bass strings are different than guitar strings. They last a lot longer and they're a lot, I, a lot different. Yeah. I never really changed my strings anyway. And, mm-hmm. um, I was talking to, to Phil Chen on one of my, uh, family friends um who actually we lost recently unfortunately mm. um but he was like a james jamerson guy and he has he had a um a white bass that he had he said i haven't changed the strings on this bass since 1967 Holy seriously shit. yep yep wow and it sounds amazing it's yeah. like when he played that bass it was like just the parts that he was playing all those james those jamerson parts mm-hmm. and the tone and it's like just it's just like just is incredible 1967 wow there's just so mm-hmm. much skin in those things at that point mm-hmm. i remember mm-hmm. we were really mojo. poor we would boil our bass strings because we couldn't yeah. afford new strings so we'd boil them and put them back on 
Mm-hmm. That was a weird time, but uh, I've done that too. Yeah, you, you, I mean, you have to. They're expensive. Mm-hmm. Shit, if you're not sponsored, those things are expensive. And if you're doing, you know, show after show after show, every five or six shows, boil them off, and in, incredible that you can do that. But um, mm-hmm. again, those are the golden days of mm-hmm. <laughs> eating top ramen noodles every day and, and boiling your strings um, to then mm-hmm. go on to to <laughs> such like stratospheric heights of of music is such a cool journey you're in a really cool spot and uh you know i i i love getting these stories from people um that are doing what you're doing because it's so fascinating just to see kind of where it where it came from where it ended up where it could have gone you know things like Mm -hmm. that and then making good on it and being successful and continuing to do that and being being with someone like pink for you said 15 years Mm-hmm. that's yeah. incredible i mean you're the one they call every time like and do you i'll ask you this real quick do you do you record on the records with her or is are you strictly live yeah just live we're just a live band unfortunately yeah i would love to do records with her but that's all that's all pretty um pretty locked up with the producers and whoever's whoever's doing the song they just keep it kind of their own little their own production gotcha okay i was curious on that yeah it's a i would rather be in the live band (laughs) for sure oh man it's so it's uh it's so much fun it's fun and it's and it's you know been a lot of the same people since i started Mm -hmm. and a lot of the crew's been there longer than i have and so that's that's um also makes the experience so great Mm -hmm. because it's it's um it's it's longevity and it's, it's familiar and it's fun. And, um, yeah, we have a great time, man. Do you, and you still have, you maintained some anonymity as well, where you could play Wembley and then walk down to the coffee shop and not be mobbed by people and, and think, Oh my like, God, like, unless <laughs> that's happening. I'm not sure. <laughs> no, it's, it's really funny. I make this joke because it's like, we'll, we'll the band will all be up there on stage and I'll get off, uh, I'll get off the stage and like walk out to like the parking lot or whatever. And people will be like, Oh my God, you're such a good dancer. You're one of the dancers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, nope. Nope. That, that was me. I was, I was playing this thing that looks like a guitar, but it's only got uh-huh. four strings. Um, yeah. It's funny. <laughs> such a good dancer. I was always the guy that got asked to take the pictures. Like, can you take a picture of us with the rest of the band? Not me. Right. And I was right. like, I'm the biggest guy up there. Like how did, Oh, you had, you had your glasses off. I didn't recognize you. Mm-hmm. That happened all the time. Yo, can you take mm-hmm. the picture? Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. So funny. Oh. Lots of anonymity. Yes. Yeah. It's a wonderful place to be. <laughs> well, what do you have? What do you have coming up then? Anything you want to plug that, that you have coming up? I you got solo stuff coming out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did a um, release the solo thing a few months ago. I've got vinyl out, um, which is super fun. You can get that on my website and I have some peak shows coming up. Actually, we're doing some festivals okay. this year. So some one-offs and uh, looking forward to that. Awesome. Well, thank you so mm-hmm. much for doing this. This has been awesome. I've been stoked to do this and, and uh, get to pick your brain for a little while. I love that about this yeah. show, just getting to go wherever <laughs> it goes, but uh, thank you for sharing so much about, uh, I mean, personal stuff. I always, uh, thank for that because it's, it's not easy sometimes, but, um, it's what connects us all together and makes us human beings. So, um, right. it can't be all mm-hmm. clinical, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, uh, we are people at the end of the day, right? Yes, absolutely. We're, we're human. Absolutely. <laughs> well, are you guys, are any of these projects, uh, or any of these things coming through the Portland area anytime soon? Um, 
Um, I don't know, actually, not that I'm aware of, but I hope so. I love Portland. Okay. Awesome. Mm-hmm. I would like to see, I would like to see you perform again, uh, not in the Meow Meow. <laughs> right. But, uh, <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, uh, I'll let you get back to your day and, and thanks for the time. And, and, uh, this has been really good. So I'll, I'll be in touch when it's coming out and everything. And, and, uh, yeah, just thank you for the time. Really appreciate awesome. it. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm glad right. you reached out. See you later. All right. See ya. Bye. Bye. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Eva Gardner. Uh, she has done so many things as you've just now heard. Um, I just love her relationship with instruments and sentimentality and music. There's just so much cool stuff there. You know, uh, when when an instrument can tie you to a family member or someone you loved, uh, it's a really beautiful thing. Uh, the fact that they played on that, their energies in that, they imprinted on that. It's something that's it sounds mystical and, and kind of, uh, you know, kumbaya, but it's not like it's you legitimately wear down the instrument with your fingers, with your hands. Uh, you you put your mark on that thing. It's an organic piece of material played by an organic piece of material. Uh, it's something I really believe in. It's something I talk about all the time, how an energy can go through an instrument. That's why Hendrix sounds like Hendrix, you know, aside from, you know, some sloppy playing and, and you know, learning things wrong and doing, you know, uh, unnecessary things to get the sound you want when you're struggling that makes you sound like who you are. So when you play something perfectly, it doesn't ever sound like that person. So that uh, partnered with the energy, I really feel is is something that is very real. And I loved talking about that with Eva. So uh, go check her music out. She's on Spotify, just under Eva Gardner. Uh, you can check out the early Mars Volta stuff she was on, uh, as well as if you go to see Pink, or uh, I don't think she's with Cher anymore, but if you go to see Pink live, you'll be able to watch her there. Um, there's also a bunch of live videos of really great performances of what she's doing. So, uh, cheers to Eva for coming on and, and thank you so much for listening, coming back week after week. I really appreciate it. I I really love you guys very much. Uh, and I, I just appreciate that you're here for me, uh, as I try to be there for you as well. Um, definitely go rate and review the show. If you're listening on Spotify, rate it on there. If you're listening on Apple podcasts, uh, go ahead and write a little review. I love seeing those and I'm going to start reading them soon on the episodes so you might get your review read as well um that's all i got guys i got a ton of shit to do i've, I've got so many things coming up episode 300 is coming up uh it's just a whirlwind of stuff to do here so i'm gonna get out of here uh but as always we'll see you on the radio
Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you!